1: Hello, I'm Natalia Shpulova-Said. I'm a host of New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Miroslav Shkandri about his book, Avant-Garde Art in Ukraine, 1910-1930, Contested Memory, which was published by Academic Studies Press in 2019. Muroslav Shkantri is professor emeritus of Slavic Studies at the University of Manitoba. He has published works on the cultural and political history of Ukraine, the avant-garde, nationalism, Jewish-Ukrainian relations, Russian-Ukrainian relations, and post-colonial theory, and has curated exhibitions at the Winnipeg Art Galleries, Hamilton Art Gallery, Ukrainian Museum in New York, and Oseredok Ukrainian Cultural and Educational Center in Winnipeg. Muroslav Shkandri authored a number of books, including Russia and Ukraine, Literature and the Discourse of Empire from Napoleonic to Post-Colonial Times. Hello, Muroslav. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me today. I would like to start our conversation with uh, quoting a paragraph from the introduction part of your book. Uh, Ukrainian artists made major contributions to the international avant-garde. Kazimir Malevich's suprematism, uh, Tatlin's constructivism, Burluk's futurism, Archipenko's cubist sculptures, Exeter's uh, theatre art, and Buchuk's monumentalism and neo-Byzantinism represent only a few examples of their experimentation. Yet, as part of a specifically Ukrainian avant-garde, they have been understudied. Even the connections between them have frequently gone unrecognized. This has obscured their contribution as a group to the international movement. So here you introduce some of the main characters of the book that include Malevich, Purlyuk, Archipenko, Ekster, Bojchuk, Vyrtov, Meller, Kavaleridze. And you situate the contributions of these artists in the local and global contexts. You also note uh, that Ukrainian avant-garde through these contributions is still understudied. So what's the main platform of your project and how can the Ukrainian contribution to the international avant-garde be reconsidered and re-evaluated?
0: Well, thanks for inviting me, first of all. That's a big question you've asked. Uh, There's several questions involved, several answers to several questions involved in that. Well, I think that... um, but as I studied the avant-garde, um, I just I, dis- I discovered that very, very many people did not know there was a Ukrainian avant-garde. Sometimes, uh, the very notion of a Ukrainian avant-garde was seen as a, as a contradiction, as a as an oxymoron, and. Um, as I, as I looked into these figures, I discovered not only that they often felt or considered themselves to be Ukrainians. They actually announced very often that they were Ukrainians. They they insisted sometimes on this background being known, but also they um, they very often claimed that their work was in some way Ukrainian or that, that Ukraine influenced their work to the point that it it, 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 it was a character, characteristic of their work. So um, I began exploring this, thinking about this, began looking at the different ways. I mean, every artist had a different way of um of uh, uh, exploring this, this, uh, this, this, uh, these traits, uh, this Ukrainian uh, element or background, wherever you want to call it. And then I also, as I studied this, I also discovered that there were connections between them wherever they were, where, even if they were in Moscow uh, or in Paris. Uh, they actually sought out, very often knew each other, corresponded. Um, so then I began to think about this idea of well, uh, you know, how how why is it this phenomenon of a, of a Ukrainian avant-garde has never been described in any detail, and what are the elements that that make make up this avant-garde? Um, So that's basically where where I began, and uh, um, what I tried to do was to point um, interested students, scholars, in directions they could explore. Um, It's not a sort of a definitive work or a definitive text in any way. It's an exploratory one, but there are many, many discoveries there, and there are many Leads to follow, and, and some of it is really uh, quite amazing. Uh, I, I mean, there there are facts that are very poorly known about these figures. Um, you know, the, the, just the fact that they they announce themselves as being as being Ukrainian is already uh, puzzling to many people and needs some explanation, some some uh, further discussion. So that's essentially where where uh, uh, I began, and that's essentially where um, I uh, sort of aimed my, my interest. Um, what I did, though, was um, I tried to break the book into two parts, or I see the book is broken into two parts. The first part is sort of looking at schools or trends, um in, uh, in Ukrainian art. and the second part is looking at specific case studies, uh, the people that you mentioned. Um, and uh, in that way I try to sort of look at the macro the macro level and and then look at the micro level or the, the individual individual level and, and draw connections between the two. I should also say that, uh, the book does not make claims for some sort of um, exclusivity for Ukrainian artists. Mm-hmm. These people, uh, all of the people that you mentioned, also participated. Well, for first start, they pr- participated in, in, inter- in an international movement. The avant-garde, by definition, in, or modernism at that time, was an international movement. They're part of an international avant-garde if they lived in Paris, if they lived in Moscow, they were also part of a French or, or or a Russian avant-garde. If they were of Jewish origin, and many were, in fact, that's one of the discoveries of this book, they also are claimed by Jewish art. And so, uh, this you know, it's a multi-layered phenomenon in which. These people are uh, besides being Ukrainian and being proud of the fact that they were Ukrainian, they were very often parts of other avant-garde. So I'm not making making some sort of essentialist claims about about these artists. Did I answer that or did I did I yes partially answered.
1: yes yes sure uh sure so but uh how would you describe ukrainian avant-garde in your work uh, you mentioned on many occasions how ukrainian artists or let's put it this way artists who were born and raised and educated in ukraine and who at some point claimed that they are ukrainians uh wanted to create something distinct and unique without following the artists in russia
0: well, uh, sometimes they were part of, uh, of groups that had roots or had uh, contacts in, in Moscow or St. Petersburg. Sometimes they were parts uh, of groups that had uh, contacts in Paris, Berlin. So it, it wasn't quite as simple as us versus them. But uh, what makes them interesting is that they, um, like all the avant-garde, they were looking for new sources, new ways of approaching art. And um, they drew inspiration very often from local phenomena. So one of the things that makes uh, the Ukrainian phenomena interesting is that they 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 drew from local primitivism, so-called primitivism. It was, in fact, uh, folk arts, sometimes the icon, but it was... These were things that they found, saw, could discover locally. Um, And they were very proud of this. This was something that other countries did not have, and it's something that had been neglected, not really well known. Now, the Russians, the Russian avant-gardists were doing something similar. The French avant-gardists were doing something similar. So were the Poles, so were the Czechs. But every one of these avant-gardes, every one of these modernisms, Drew from some aspects of the local, their own, and they transformed it in ways that they felt would bring them uh, bring bring the local into into a greater prominence. So that's one aspect of it: the primitivism, uh, the folkloric element, the local element, history. Uh, each each of the avant garde was interested in exploring some elements of the past in their in their own artistic traditions. What I find, this is now I'm speculating a little bit, but one of the things that I found fascinating was the Ukrainian avant-gardists were particularly interested in color, mm-hmm. in theorizing color, and in uh, developing a sort of a, uh, uh, an attitude towards the avant-garde through uh, exploration of colors. They were very proud of that, and and they were actually known for bringing color to the uh, to the avant-garde. Now, some people have challenged me on that, but if you look at the statements of Exter Alexandra Exter, or if you look at the s- statements of Leger. Or if you look at the statements of Sonia Deloney, these people were very conscious of the fact that they were bringing a kind of a, what they call the Ukrainian color, uh, a colorfulness to the avant-garde. David Burluk, the same, said, you know, if you look at my colors, uh, you can see that I am a faithful son of Ukraine. So there was this... this uh, this belief that, that color was something special that they could bring. Then, another aspect that I found fascinating, and this again is speculative, I don't want to make this uh, definitive, but there was an emphasis on uh, artisanry, on materials, on uh, skills, you know, the, the skills that, that artisans have in their fingertips. This is very much a, uh, a Ukrainian tradition, uh, coming from you know the cottage industry, from um, the, 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 the crafts uh, uh, that the peasants uh, developed. But there was this uh, love of material and love of the process of making things, and that's where Tatlin um, uh, came in. That's where that's where he gets a lot of his inspiration from. Also, Brichuk and his school. So there were there were certain emphasis in in the Ukrainian avant-garde, which is uh, more prominent than in other avant Um an ecological consciousness, mm-hmm. uh, a, an interest in nature, and an interest in an interest in cos, cosmic things, rather than an interest in uh, the city, class war. All these marching troops going off and conquering, Ukrainians was much more. It's a much gentler approach. And even if you look at the po- political posters, and I do actually have a chapter on political posters, they're different. Their attitude towards uh, producing pro-Bolshevik posters was rather different. It's a different tonality. It's a different. It's a different style. So. What I thought was interesting was to explore what made the Ukrainian avant-garde different in the same way as you would say the Polish avant-garde is different or the Czech avant-garde is different or the French or the Spanish or, you know, the Jewish avant-garde. They're all different. And in this way, there are certain aspects of the Ukrainian that are particular. Mm -hmm.
1: So, and um, you clearly trace the dynamic of the Ukrainian avant-garde throughout the um, 1910s and uh, 1920s. And uh, you specify how the emphases shifted and changed. So, would you talk a little bit about these uh, shifts and what they delivered and uh, what they responded to and how it shaped the Ukrainian avant-garde?
0: That's another big question. Uh, It's... uh... You have to write histories to understand all this. Um, well, uh, the pre-revolutionary avant-garde, the pre-1917 avant-garde, was a little bit different. That was the you know the, the glorious time when Bourlouk and uh, various uh, explorers were doing were doing, uh, were doing uh, outlandish things and trying trying to uh, shock uh you know épater les bourgeois but th- then came the revolution and during the revolution something quite interesting happened there was a uh, a blend of revolutionary uh Bolshevik or uh, pro-communist uh, trends and the uh, the art movement and a uh, Often they were intention. They were not always uh, harmonious. So when I looked at uh, Boychuk, I was struck by the fact that uh, he developed a school that uh, was very interested in archaic things, the icon, uh, Byzantine art, uh, the Renaissance, but at the same time tried to blend that to develop a a, um, didactic art that would be understandable to common people. I was also struck by the fact that exactly the same time and in the same place as Boychuk was doing his work, the Kulturliga, Liga, the Jewish avant-garde, was doing something very similar. It was also revolutionary, saw itself as revolutionary. But it also saw itself as archaic, interested in the archaic, looking back on uh, thousands of years of Jewish tradition. So, uh, exploring the archetypes, uh, exploring the the forms, um, the, uh, uh, the the expressions that Jews had developed over over generations. Well, that was exactly the same thing as Bichurk was doing. Both groups. Uh, for a while, were very prominent, and then both groups were crushed. Um, they began to um, they began to uh, come up against uh, the problems uh, uh, of um, rebelling against uh, against uh, what the Commissars thought was correct art. But there was a sort of a flowering throughout the 20s. Uh, It was a period of Ukrainianization, and it was also a period of Yiddishization. So the two movements were allied. And then came the late 20s, and uh, with Stalinism um, came a sort of a, a boom came down, and one had to conform in specific ways, ideologically, even stylistically, uh, by uh, by the early 30s, these works were all – write, the writers and artists were being arrested. These works were being confiscated. And they were all uh, – in the 30s, they were all – all the avant-gardists were in one way or another suppressed, or they had to change their styles. And many, many of these works were actually uh, taken away and – Put into the vault in the basement of the Kiev, what is today the Kiev uh, National Museum of Art. There is a huge vault down there. You can visit it um, uh, behind iron doors, steel doors with uh, chains. Uh, uh, Something like 1,200 works were often wrapped, the canvases were wrapped onto onto these rollers and thrown into these uh, corners. They were designated by the curators as zero value. In other words, things that were, could be ignored. And that is how they survived into the 60s when Dmitro Gorbachev and others began to discover them and bring them to the surface, bring, uh, begin uh, reintroducing the avant-garde to the public. So uh, by the 30s, uh, most of the artists had disappeared or, been, or changed their styles or had been, uh, been silenced. Um, many of the works had been thrown into this, uh, Spets fund, this special fund uh, in the basement. And thing, the atmosphere had changed completely.
1: Yeah, well, oh, what you just said really is quite astonishing. When uh, you mentioned that zero value actually somehow contributed to the survival of these uh, works, that's that's a uh, that's quite an astonishing statement.
0: When something well, that is labeled it, as... it was done. It was done deliberately by the mm-hmm. curators. Mm-hmm. The curators were on several occasions told to destroy these works. Uh, and they used various tactics. One tactic was to say these works had been bought at the expense of the public money, and therefore we, uh, I do not have the right to do this. But one of the tactics was, in fact, to say that this was just worthless trash, mm-hmm. forget it. And and they were forgotten for many for many years. I should also mention that when the Nazis invaded uh, in '41, they took all these works. And they took them to Germany to I think to uh, Kaliningrad, what is now Kaliningrad, to that area. Um, something like 1200 and only about three four hundred were returned. So no one quite knows what happened to many of these works. Mm-hmm.
1: So many of the artists uh, who were born, raised and educated in Ukraine um, subsequently traveled uh, or moved to other countries including Russia, Western Europe or the US. And um, very often particularly in Russia they would perceived uh, they would be perceived as artists from the periphery and uh, some of these artists would refer to themselves as countrymen. Uh, Would you comment on this relationship between the centers and the peripheries? Why is it still productive to maintain this sort of approach to the developments in art and literature? And I guess that uh, this question uh, pertains to uh, post-colonial perspectives um, on Ukraine.
0: Yeah, that's a great question, and it's one that uh, I think uh, we need to spend more time analyzing and talking about. So one of the things I say in my book is that the, the currents, the influences traveled not just from west to east, but also from east to west. Many of the avant-gardists, Kandinsky, Burluk, um, Exter, they brought from the east things that were then introduced. uh, Malevich, for example, they brought from the east things that were were introduced to the west. That same um, traffic also did not go from north to south. Very often it went from south to north. The first exhibitions in the uh, former Russian Empire or the Russian Empire were, in fact, in the south. So that's one thing to think about. The other thing to think about is um, very often when rules are being broken, it's from outside the, the, the center that those rules rules are broken. Ukrainians thought very often they were bringing new a new word, a new way of thinking, and they were out to uh, overturn uh, the. Uh, this, the you know the 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 old citadels uh, of uh, of academic training and af- academic practice, and very often it was actually that's one reason why very many of these avant-gardists, even though they later became prominent figures in the Russian avant-garde, came from Ukraine. So we need to rethink that uh, the the whole concept of uh, center and periphery uh is, is something that um particularly with the avant-garde it's something that uh, uh needs to be uh, completely rethought did i was there another element to your question
1: yeah uh well um can i ask you this follow-up question on post-colonial perspectives on ukraine which is quite po- um popular today uh, but uh, there, are, there are a lot of scholars who support this kind of approach, but there are some uh, who warn us against uh, maybe oversimplifying um, this approach to uh, Ukraine. So um, if you could, um, could you just make your comments on what is the uh, maybe efficient way to uh, take this approach, post-colonial approach to Ukraine?
0: Uh, I'm not sure I can answer that. Uh, I I believe that. Um, well, I believe that within uh, post-colonialism and po- post-colonial theory, there are different there are different approaches. There are different ways of looking at this. Um, uh, if you're looking at the question of hegemony, for example, these things are political, but they're also artistic. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's clear that. Uh, Ukrainians were well positioned to 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 develop a sort of an anti-hegemonic view of things, and the avant-garde very much is a sort of uh, um, uh, an overturning of what has been perceived as hegemonic. So, yeah, that's that's one one approach towards uh, towards the, the post-colonial, um, but. You know, it's also wrapped up in politics. There was a revolution in Ukraine. It wasn't the same as the so-called Russian Revolution. It wasn't the same as the revolution in St. Petersburg and in Moscow, but there was a revolution in Ukraine from 1917 to 1920. And the Bolsheviks only established themselves slowly and with great difficulty after 1920. The country was seething with rebellion. So, from a, a sort of a political perspective, you have the, this this view of Ukraine as uh, nonconformist, as a as actually as a foreign place. When uh, the Russian Bolsheviks came, they very often couldn't communicate with Ukrainians. They couldn't speak the language. Um, they didn't understand the traditions, and there was a great deal of uh, uh, unhappiness and anger about that. It, it dawned on Russians, Russian Bolsheviks even, from, who often came from the north, that they were actually dealing with a foreign country, with a, a, a people who thought and acted and spoke differently. Now that, I think in, in the literature on this subject, that has often been neglected, um, it's not been really understood, and so that's another uh, aspect of this sort of um, recovery of this uh, of this uh, uh, anti-colonial, anti-imperial perspective. And by the way, the Jewish community in Ukraine was actually on side with the Ukrainians in this respect. They too were trying to overturn. Uh, the so the 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 Russian imperial perspective, and uh, in a lot of ways, the um, the the pro communist pro Bolshevik perspective, they were also outsiders, and there was for a while in the particularly in the early to mid twenties there was an alliance between the the Jewish um, reformers. And the Ukrainian reformers, that's a a way of kind of capturing reformers would be a term that captures anti-Moscow, anti-Moscow-inclined groups. Mm
1: -hmm. So uh, when it comes to the Ukrainian component, let's put it this way, in either literature or art, uh, particularly in um, those cases when um, it overlaps with the Russian domain, one often either dismisses it uh, as being very close to the Russian domain, which is not relevant and correct, but this trend is uh, still perseveres and I think um, you addressed um, uh, this issue uh, already in your previous uh, respon- uh, response. Uh, or one asks a question of the following nature. Uh, what does the Ukrainian component add? Uh, The latter also seems to um, subliminally evoke the proximity between Russian and Ukrainian dimensions. Uh, How would you approach uh, these comments of this nature? Uh, And in other words, what does the avant-garde in Ukraine help us learn and uh, understand? And uh, I uh, ask this question basing on the um, Uh, concluding remarks in your uh, book uh, where you mention a couple of exhibitions which were organized uh, in the States as well as in Russia and where these uh, artists uh, whom you discuss in your book presented solely as Russian.
0: Well, it's a a big discussion right now, um, and it's also a controversial discussion because many of these figures have been assimilated over many decades now, into the Russian avant-garde, into Russian history. And some people feel offended when one comes along and says, well, actually, Kazimir Malevich, was, even though he was of Polish background, he considered himself a Ukrainian, and and so you have to prove the case. Same with Burluk. For many people, this is a shock to discover that Burluk consider themselves Ukrainian, though other people consider him, him Ukrainian. So what has happened is that there have been attempts to kind of discover the, say the Ukrainian school and, uh, the Ecole de Paris or the Jewish element in the Ecole de Paris or the Russian or the German or whatever. But, um, It's this kind of uh, shock to the system that is produced by new ways of uh, approaching and new ways of thinking. And this has been going on now for, I don't know, about 20 years. The Ukrainians have been drawn, since independence essentially, Ukrainians have been bringing works out of Ukraine and exhibiting them and uh, recovering their own history, which includes the avant-garde and explaining uh, a great deal that was unknown uh, about individual figures and about trends and movements and I think uh, I think it uh, upsets quite a lot of people particularly those who have a sort of Mus- Moscow centric or Rus- Russocentric view to, to discover that um, these people who they thought were uh, Russians, and who made russian culture glamorous for them turned out to be ukrainians that's that's actually something that um, uh, is linked to the to your post colonial perspective mm-hmm. rethinking how how we view these these people but I think uh, most of the interesting work, or perhaps the work that's still involved in, in being done, has to be done at, at a micro level now. Mm. We can talk about general trends. but We need to talk about the specifics, the life and the work of Malevich what he did when he was in Ukraine, why his autobiography is so focused on Ukraine, why he identified with, uh, you know, the imprinting uh, of his childhood in Ukraine. You could do the same with uh, Kavaleritsa. You could do the same with uh, Mm Zygovertov and the films that he produced. You have to look with, you know – at the micro level, at what make these people who they were, mm-hmm. look at the works themselves, analyze the works, uh, and then you begin to see uh, new patterns, un- unexpected patterns emerge. Mm-hmm. I think that's where a lot of the energy should be put now. We need those kind of, those kind of specifics. Mm-hmm. And there's a great deal to do. There's a lot of material, there are a lot of uh, un- unexplored archival materials, works. We've lost a lot of the works, but many have survived. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you can combine an analysis of the, the works with a uh, historical, cultural historical perspective, uh, you can make new discoveries. Mm-hmm.
1: I'm still thinking about those two comments that you uh, made that uh, for too many, uh, this kind of information that uh, some um, artists were Ukrainians uh, comes as a shock. Uh, And another one that uh, this information that they were Ukrainians should be proved somehow. Uh, It's very hard for me to... Probably even uh, imagine the situation when we talk about some artist who was perceived a Ukrainian but or who was Ukrainian, but then it was revealed that he is a Russian. I don't think that a lot of work. Um, would have to be done in order to prove that he's Ukrainian, so um, I, or that he's Russian. So uh, I guess that um, I'm thinking about this, um, um, this, this comment, uh, this description of how um, we can probably resist or we can change the system of some conventional perceptions of this artist. And here we should start with the micro level instead of. Um, Making some big claims. Well, they are not Russians, but they are Ukrainians. And according yeah, to yeah, Russia, you,
0: have, you have to prove your case. So you can look at Khrushchenko, uh, 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 mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who lived and worked in Moscow, and would have been if he'd stayed, he would have been claimed to this day as one of the great um, avant-gardists and great Russian innovators. But he left. Mm-hmm went to Istanbul and then he went to Paris and he made a name for himself. And all of a sudden, uh, his canvases in Moscow were all destroyed. He had uh, become a traitor. He had left.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's a very you know common thing. It, and if you look at others, too, uh, these people are later um, uh, re- written out of history. They are simply denied their place. Mm-hmm. So what Ukrainians need to do is just look at their figures, and you know, you don't have to underline the fact that they're Ukrainian because it's there. Mm-hmm. But you can explain to a broader audience the context in which uh, these people had to work and how they dealt with that. Um, I think there are many, many people in emigration, artists in emigration, also. That's another aspect of this, which uh, it was an international movement. And these figures were very, very often ended up in Western countries and continued their work in Western countries. So we have now forgotten the connection between people in, uh, avant gardists in Ukraine and avant gardists outside. But that connection existed, actually, it was very strong until the mid-20s when the wall came down. And people were not allowed to travel anymore. But that connection was very strong. They'd grown up together, they'd been to the same classes, the same schools together, they knew each other, and then they ended up in different places. But that avant garde in emigration, whether it became French or American uh, or German or Polish, you know, it still was in many ways Ukrainian. And we've actually lost that, lost very often lost that sense of um, wholeness, mm-hmm. uh, the sense of inter, interconnection, mm-hmm. which needs rediscovering. <clears throat> I have to also, I'm, I'm sorry to keep harping on about the Jewish connection, but it is important. In Western Ukraine in particular, in Galicia, many of these artists were Ukrainians and Jews and Poles at the same time. Mm-hmm and when they ended up in emigration they often hung out together they were they were comfortable being ukrainians and comfortable being jews and comfortable sometimes being poles too so that's another connection that we've lost alhipenko for example when he was in berlin whole whole group of jewish artists from galicia came to him and wanted to sit and work with him we also have uh, many examples of people who, uh, artists who were in the United States or uh, in uh, Western uh, European countries who returned to Galicia and created schools there. And their students were often not just Ukrainians, but Poles, but also uh, uh, Jews. There there are many, many sort of intricate connections which we have now forgotten. So i don't want to sort of make it sound like you uh, UK- that the ukrainian thing is somehow uh, so different so unique that mm-hmm. it is exclusive it's not it's inclusive
1: mm-hmm. yeah um <clears throat> would you agree um that uh, ukraine particularly in the nine uh, in the 1910s and in the 1920s was quite open uh, to include not just to include other cultures and influences and communities, ethnic communities, but also recognize their difference
0: and yeah, their. Absolutely. Well, first of all, Ukraine is a multicultural uh, uh, society. It was, uh, still is. It always was, uh, was soaking up influences. Contacts with the West were very easy. Kavelariza, mm-hmm. when he decided to go to Paris. Uh, he just he went got his visa the same day he was on a train to uh, traveling west. I mean it was so easy before 1917 to travel, and this was this was uh, people went to Western Europe to finish their education. It was just normal to to do that. Uh, so that's uh, uh, another element that we've just sort of lost mm-hmm. we think these people were sort of uh, cooped up and couldn't move around they actually moved around a lot more than we we can today especially with covid well we're stuck uh, they they weren't that that stuck and their mentality was open now there's another aspect to this mm-hmm. you uh if you know anything about ukrainian culture especially around the beginning of the 20th century, they were absolutely obsessed with becoming European, being recognized as European, bringing what they had to offer, their special talents, their special knowledge to a European civilization, a European culture. And they were very proud of the fact that they had something special. So it was this, what I call bringing... Europe gifts to the cultural high table. they were very much involved in that they were keen on that. So this um, especially in the in the era of modernism, this idea of being being uh, national and international were not uh, contradictory. They were they were complementary and Ukrainians were very much keen on that
1: yeah and maybe I'll ask this naive question why was it lost how was it lost was it because only of the Soviet time period
0: yeah well I think uh, borders came down certainly there were political borders this First World War was a huge a huge change the First World War separated countries uh, uh political groups uh, it tore apart, uh, tore the world apart. And then came the revolution. Uh, the Bolshevik sort of wall came down again. Uh, nobody was could leave and nobody could go there without uh, certain preconceptions and certain uh, certain um, restrictions. Although until about 1925, there was still quite a lot of travel. Uh, and then I think uh, yeah, I think that's an interesting question. I think something happened to the world. Mm-hmm. Mentally, people began to change as well. Uh, one would have to think about that and, and analyze it. Mm-hmm. Certainly, the, the atmosphere was very, very different and very... Uh, Political partisan in a very negative, um, a very uh, small-minded way.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess my final question will be about the subtitle of your book, "Contested Memory." Why contested
0: memory? Well, because this is still controversial. Um, when I began writing about Malevich, I got very—I got some very angry responses. Mm. How dare you, you know, call him? Ukrainian. So I, I sort of thought about that and I thought well but I have to answer that. I have to have a response to that or with Burlyuk the same thing or with any of these these figures uh, look at Zigebertov. How many people talk about him as being Ukrainian? Very few if you look at any any of the literature, none of it talks about they don't see any Ukrainian element in his work at all? So I, what I did was I looked at the, I looked at the, uh, uh, the works and I tried to analyze them and show that yeah, there is a, there are, there are different ways of analyzing this. There are different levels to his work, and one of them is this Ukrainian level. So it is still contested. It is uh, even in Russia today. Uh, there are people that say, well, this is not. There was no Ukrainian avant-garde. So. Uh, I think the way to answer that is not to, to to bark back, yes there was, but to actually write about it, discuss it, prove it, show it, you know, through analysis, through through discussion, um, through demonstration. And I think there's a there's a great uh, there's a great job to be done there for young scholars. It's the the information is available now.
1: Well, thank you so much, Miroslav. Thank you so much for this uh, wonderful conversation. Uh, and thank you for your book that um, introduces us to this complex and multi layered intricacies of avant garde and Ukrainian avant garde in particular. Thank you, Miroslav.
0: Thank you. And it was a pleasure.
1: Today I spoke with Miroslav Shkandri about his book, Avant-Garde Art in Ukraine, 1910-1930, Contested Memory, which was published by Academic Studies Press in 2019. Thank you for listening to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.